So to begin our Advent conversation, I want to put a simple question out there, but I want to propose it. it's not as simple as it sounds. And the question is just this, what time is it? What time is it? Is it a 12.20 on the clock right now? What, what time is it? Um, I raise this because if you actually dig a little deeper beyond like the time on the clock, you might realize that you orient yourself in time based on the things that you were paying attention to. Uh, and this is not different from space. So if I ask you, where are you right now? You might start with, well, I'm in church right now, but maybe a friend's like, well, I don't know where that is. Maybe they're texting you. And you might say, oh, well, it's in the old Studebaker factory. Or you might, in response to where are you, you might say you're next to the South Bend Cubs or you're uh, right across the parking lot from the county jail. And we could probably read too much into your answer to where are you. But, but there might be something to the fact that now we know what you're paying attention to. Like the way that you locate yourself indicates a little bit about what you are paying attention to, and the same would go for time. Like if I ask what time it is, you might begin to move into descriptions of um, maybe you're having a birthday, or maybe uh, you're in the first year post-divorce. Maybe it's your first Christmas without someone you love. These are all ways of locating yourself in time, and they tell us a little bit about what you're paying attention to and who you are and how you think about what things mean in the here and now. I think how we keep time and how we locate ourselves in time and what kind of time we pay attention to, these are actually really big questions about identity and belonging and what we are a part of. And to make my case a little further, let me give you a couple of examples. So the country of China is roughly the same size as the United States in geographic space, uh, give or take some disputed territories, roughly the same size. However, in the United States, we have a number of time zones and the country of China has one time zone across the entire country. Now, things weren't always that way, but in 1949, the Communist Party was coming to power in China. And at that moment in 1949, the leader of the party declared that we're going to take China from five time zones to one. We will all keep the same time. And they said this was an effort to affect national unity. This is a way of saying you will keep the same time that we are keeping because we are part of the same thing. We're a part of the same project. We belong to one another. We share a political identity. And curiously, there's one uh, ethnic minority in China that refuses to keep time the way the government has said you have to keep time. And so they're two hours off from the rest of the country. And it may not be about where they are geographically. It's a way of saying where are they politically, psychologically, sociologically, perhaps even spiritually. They're keeping time differently to say something about who they are, right? Now, I was in uh, Jerusalem uh, just like a month ago. And in Jerusalem, we're staying in a hotel there, and it happens to be the weekend when things are switching from daylight saving time to standard time. And Saturday morning, our little travel group woke up, and we were all confused in the hotel because, for example, my roommate in the hotel room, his clock had fallen back between Friday night and Saturday morning, and mine hadn't. So when we woke up Saturday morning, our clocks had two different times on our phones. Now, on Sunday morning, my phone switched over, and we asked around, and we discovered uh, well, first of all, so Jerusalem is right on the border between Israeli territory and Palestinian territory. And come to find out, the Palestinians, as one small act of defiance, resistance, protest, a way of saying we don't like the status quo and we are not on board with the Israeli definition of the way things should be here right now, they've decided we're going to change time on Saturday nights. And they changed time on Sundays. And because we were in Jerusalem, half of our phones were picking up signals from Israeli towers and half of our phones were picking up signals from Palestinian towers. In fact, there's a story that there was a protest march through the streets one time not too long ago where the Palestinians were holding up their wristwatches in the faces of the Israelis as if to say F you with my watch. 
It's a little way of uh, defining resistance and belonging and identity. It's a way of saying what are you a part of or what are you not a part of. Time really matters. Now for maybe like a less exotic example that I learned about during the first gathering, there's a teacher in our community who teaches in New Prairie schools. Any New Prairie connections here? Apparently, yeah, apparently all the schools but one are in one county and then there's one school in the district that's in St. Joe County and that means you cross a time zone line. And what I learned today from this teacher was that the school district has just imposed school time so all the schools are on the same time. So I don't know if it's like the Vatican is different from Rome. Like this one school in St. Joe County, they enforce a central time on the school that's in the Eastern time zone. Because why? Because all these teachers and students, right, they're part of the same thing, right? And one way to know what you're a part of is how you keep time and who else keeps time like that. Like the way we keep time is really important. I raise this because this is the beginning of Advent. It's actually the, the beginning of the entire sacred year in the way that followers of Jesus have kept time over the centuries. We call it sometimes the Christian year, the Christian calendar, the liturgical year. This is when we press into things like Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and uh, Lent and Ash Wednesday and Easter and ordinary time. And some of you will have had lots of experience with those things and perhaps it's fond and you found it really helpful. Others uh, will have no experience at all with those things. Others will have been around that thing, but it, maybe it was part of a larger package of religious experiences that wasn't very life-giving for you. I, I get all of that. But as a community, as we are trying to follow Jesus into the actual practiced life of his kingdom, we've learned there's some deep wisdom in the tradition, including learning how to keep time with the tradition. And so we name this time Advent. We keep time a little bit differently. And uh, Advent again, is not just a part of the, the calendar year, but it's the beginning of the sacred calendar. And perhaps more than any other part of the calendar, I think Advent is a time uh, when we ask ourselves, like, what time is it? And how, how are we defining the moment that we are living in right now? Uh, by the way, there's a Benedictine nun named Joan Chittister who writes a book called The Liturgical Year. Highly recommend it. And she's talking about how it is that the liturgical year works on us. And she says this, Liturgical time binds heaven and earth into one and the same rhythm. Rather than give ourselves totally to life as we know it, here and now, liturgical time raises our sights above the dailiness of life to the essence of life. Uh, so this is our, our framing for Advent. We're going to learn to keep time a little bit differently. And to do that, uh, we're going to use a book of the Bible this month that I'm very excited about. Uh, it's a book in the Bible that's about waiting and hoping. It's a book of the Bible that is written for people who need to be clear on what time they're living in. And the book I'm talking about is Revelation. Now, when I tell you that we're going like, to work through the book of Revelation, probably lots of feelings in the room. Some of you are just prepared to be bored. Uh, others are excited, and some of you are a little freaked out, right? Um, I'm curious, uh, just before we get into this, I'd love to hear from the room a little bit. Like, what comes to mind when you just hear the book of Revelation mentioned? Maybe you go out to coffee with a friend, and they bring up the book of Revelation. What feelings do you have? Um, maybe you got that crazy friend who, like, reads all the prophecy books. Maybe you are that crazy friend who reads all the prophecy books. Um, maybe you get uncomfortable when a preacher on a stage says they're going to dig into this messy book that, that's been used in so many different ways and taught in so many different ways. Uh, anybody want to just holler, like, what comes to mind? What word is comes to mind when you hear the book of Revelation mentioned? Abstract. Abstract. Thank you. Rapture. Rapture. Discovery. Discovery. Hope. Hope. Left, behind. Left behind confusion. Maybe those were meant to go together. I don't know. Sorry. No. That might be putting my cards on the table a little too much. Yeah. End times? End times preachers. 
End times preachers, yeah. Intimidating, yeah. Excitement, yeah, excellent, okay. Yeah, I think all of that makes sense to me. All of that, right? Uh, I've been reading the book a lot lately, over and over again. And by the way, I'm going to encourage you to actually read it for yourself this month so you don't have to take my word for any of this. Um, But I've been reading through it, and it struck me, the first thing I feel when I read this book, frankly, to put it bluntly, is this book is weird. And I actually mean that, right? So let me take you through some of the features in the text. This is just a survey of the things that are actually in the book of Revelation. This is just a few, by the way. Here we go. We have a dragon whose tail sweeps stars out of the sky, a cosmic birthing scene, a prostitute named Babylon, a slain lamb, a sea that turns into blood, a smoky abyss that opens up in the earth, a lake of burning sulfur, the wine, this is a direct quote, the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Side note, if you've had a hard time enforcing discipline at the home with the kids, maybe you just need a little more apocalyptic language in your, in your discourse, right? <laughs> kids, when, you're, when your father gets home, the wine of his fury will be poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Just try that and let us know how it goes next week. Uh, We have a man riding a horse wearing a robe dipped in blood with a sword coming out of his mouth that he uses to smite the nations. A heavenly city with pearl gates and roads paved in gold and a future without beaches because there will be no sea. And then, of course, the promise of the end of death and mourning and crying and pain and the unending experience of the presence and welcome of God and the renewal of all things when heaven and earth are one and we are healed and evil is finally permanently defeated by the victory of Christ. That's just a little bit of the features in the text. Weird, moving, intimidating, hopeful, exciting. Uh, There's a lot to wrestle with in the book of Revelation. Uh, In the next few weeks, we're going to use some history, some context, some scholarship, and hopefully some sound theology uh, to draw some themes. We won't have time to do like a chapter by chapter, line by line teaching of the book. Frankly, I'm not sure anybody's up for that or looking for that. Um, But we're going to pull some themes out of the text in the next few weeks. Along the way, I'm at least going to start with the assumption that the best way to know what a text means is to understand what it meant. I think it's a really important principle. If you really want to know what it means, we should start by asking what it meant. Uh, That's that's, uh, important for a lot of reasons, but uh, perhaps one being... If, for example, you end up with an interpretation of the book of Revelation that's intensely relevant for the year 2018, because perhaps you've decoded the Mog and Magog and the powers from the north and the east or Iran and Russia and the locusts or Black Hawk helicopters, these are all, by the way, actual interpretations that have been offered in the book of Revelation. My first question would be, cool, so you think that God encoded in a text meaning that really only applied in the year 2018 in a way that would have meant nothing for its original audience because they didn't have Black Hawk helicopters that the locusts were pointing to, that seems to miss like a starting point on the text. So we'll ask a lot about what it meant so we can ask what it means for us today. But I'm actually interested in something beyond meaning. What I'm most interested in is what is it supposed to do in us? What is this text supposed to do to us? How is it supposed to move us, shape us, change us? And I think meaning is important along the way, but what I'm really aiming for is that the text would do in us, personally and in our community, the things that it is meant to do in us and our community. Just transparently, that's what I'm aiming for in the next few weeks. So we're gonna do some work. You guys up for a little revelation work? 
Awesome, good deal. Uh, let me give you just a little bit of basic framing context. There's a lot of arguments over exactly when this text was written and what context was around it, but it's basically clear that a man named John or in the school of John is writing this text to a number of churches that are in Asia, which at the time is part of the Roman Empire. And as he's writing to these churches, it seems that this overriding concern that has stirred up this vision inside him is that there's this thing called the Roman Empire. And when they look at the Roman Empire and they look at the kingdom of God, there are some things that are just fundamentally incompatible about those two things. It's as if the Roman Empire with its economic injustices and its emperor worship and its cultic practices and its enslavement and the ways that enacts military violence and the greed that's demonstrated in the marketplace, that all of these things have added up to a way of being in the world, a kingdom or an empire that's incompatible with the kingdom of God. And it seems that these churches are in somehow in danger of giving up on the kingdom of God and just going along with the kingdom called Rome at that time. This book is trying to shake people. It's trying to like, wake people up. It's trying to say, don't do that. It's trying to say, look, we understand that, there are, that you're like, the world that you are living in, the water that you are swimming in is saturated with a certain way of being human, a certain vision of power, a certain empire. But it's saying, you've got to hold out. You've got to hold on. You've got to resist. You've got to keep your eyes on this other thing that we believe has broken in and will in fact arrive. We call it the kingdom of God. Jesus brought it and invites us into it. And while we may not see the fullness of it in the here and now, you've got to hold on. Uh, for example, um, there's an urgency that comes in this. Like th this is urgent. This is a matter of timeliness. The urgency shows up, for example, in uh, chapter 12. Um, and by the way, in the book of Revelation, there's all these layers and images, but we have Satan, the accuser, the serpent, the dragon. We have Rome. We have Babylon. It appears that through all those images, the writer is basically saying there is evil uh, there's this supernatural personified thing that has a life of its own, and it also is showing up through the systems of the empire that we are a part of right now. So those are all sort of stacked up side by side. And here we have one of these mentions of that evil. When we read about a loud voice in heaven saying, the accuser, by the way, the accuser is where the word Satan comes from. In uh, Hebrew, Hasatan means accuser. So the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. He's filled with fury, watch this, because he knows that his time is short. Because he knows that his time is short. I think this is a book for people who need to know what time it is. There's more urgency when we read later in the text. In chapter 22, Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. Again, just a few verses later, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. Uh, so the text is somehow trying to help people understand what time it is. It's trying to get them to not just go along with this sort of empire thing that's around them, but to hold out for the kingdom of God. It's trying to locate themselves not in an unending night of evil, but perhaps at a dawning moment, right? Now, let's look at one of the ways the text actually tries to do this. I'm going to pull one thread out of it today. Um, and I'm going to propose to you that it's meant to do something in its original audience, and it might do it for us. Too. The thread begins in Revelation chapter 5, where we read this. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This thread I'm proposing begins with the lamb that's slain. And then in chapter 8, we read about a series of angels that blow trumpets that unleash a kind of holy war in the world. Watch this. 
8 verse 7, the first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. And so a third of the day without light, and also a third of the night. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. And then the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who'd been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. This is pretty intense. This is pretty violent and dark. Um, there's death. Uh, there's water turning to blood. There's locusts like ravaging the earth. What's going on here? Well, uh, there's a, a word for these six things that have just happened. It's a biblical word. It's a word that evokes other stories in the scripture. And the Bible uses it to describe what just happened because just a little while later we read this. These plagues. So watch what just happened. Chapter 5, we have a lamb that's slain. And then we have a series of plagues ravaging the cosmos. John is a very Jewish writer. In fact, if we had more time, I would take you on a little excursion and show you that he's perhaps even more Jewish in his sensibilities than other New Testament writers. He's a very Jewish writer. And he's writing to people who are wrestling with the empire that they are a part of and hoping for the world that God has promised. They're wrestling with whether they should simply resign themselves to the empire around them or hold out for the empire that God has promised. And we've read about a lamb that's been killed and then a series of plagues. And some of you with a little bit of Bible in you are hearing some bells ring right now. Yes, this is a cosmic Passover exodus story. Way back in the Israelites' history, you have people who for 400 years have known slavery they're a part of an unholy, unjust empire called Egypt. And then God decides that he will liberate them from that place. And in the process of their liberation, he enacts plagues, which include locusts and darkness and blood in the water. This is like a cosmic Passover, a cosmic exodus, a cosmic moment of liberation that's being described here. Now remember, if you're in Egypt, you've been enslaved for 400 years, which might suggest to your soul that this will never and you ask a slave in Egypt, what time is it? They might say, who cares? Yesterday, today, and tomorrow will all be the same. Our slavery will not end, so we might as well just go along with this. But Passover is the moment where God says, no, you need to wake up. Don't miss this because the time is that you were at the eve of your liberation. And though it has been a long, dark night, if you look closely, you might even see that the faintest strands of light are breaking into the east even now. 
This is a story for people who need to know that the way things are is not the way they will always be. So don't you dare resign yourself to the way things are. This is a story for people who need to know what time it is, that there's a cosmic liberation that God is working out in the world. You might have been looking to the West and seen the darkness and decided the best thing you can do is go along with the way things are, but this text is saying, don't be so sure. I think one of the problems for all of us is when we think that the clock will never run out on injustice, we're tempted to just go along with injustice. When we think the clock will never run out on our slavery, we are tempted to simply resign ourselves to our slavery. Whatever has you trapped, whatever has you broken and beaten down. When we think the clock will never run out on our neighbor's slavery, we might become invested in their slavery. We might actually position ourselves in a system that benefits from it somehow, if that's the way that things are going to be. When we think the clock will never run out on our pain, we might just give up. We might just give in. When we think the clock will never run out on sin, darkness, death, when we, when we think the clock will never run out on the way things are, we might stop hoping for the way that things will be. And it's not just that hoping is a feeling that you have, it's actually a way of acting in the world. Because if you believe the light will come, and in fact, if, if you realize it's possible that those very faintest horizontal strands of warmth are glowing on the eastern horizon, you might turn your attention in that direction. You might even start walking in that direction. And then you will discover that waiting and hoping are radical revolutionary ways of living in the here and now. And John writes to these churches, which are tempted to say the way things are is the way they will be, so let's just go along with it. And he's shaking them with a cosmic story of Passover and deliverance, so that when he asked them what time is it, they too could say, we are on the eve of a revolution, of a liberation. We are on the eve of God's kingdom breaking in in its fullness, and we will walk toward it even now. The Museum of the Bible has an interesting artifact in its collection. Now, let me show you this. This Bible was published in 1808, and I know you probably can't read the fine print there. It says, parts of the Holy Bible selected for the use of the Negro slaves. This is a selectively edited Bible that slave masters would give to their slaves because they were so magnanimous as to share the gospel with their slaves. I'm being sarcastic, of course. So here's what's interesting. Um, this is a intelligently edited Bible by people who are invested in the slave trade who it works for them, it's advantageous for them, and they have designed this Bible to eliminate whatever threat it poses to the status quo that they are profiting off of. So they've ripped out of the Bible anything that might affect the status quo, anything that might inspire these slaves to not put up with this, anything that might inspire revolution or liberation, they've ripped out of the Bible. And one of the largest texts that they took out of the Bible is the book of Revelation which I find fascinating on a number of levels. One thing I think is evil has a certain kind of genius, and somebody somewhere figured out, if you put this text, this white-hot, raging, powerful text in the hands of these slaves, they might get a sense that the way things are is not the way they will always be, and they might start to hope for something different. They might start to act for something different. They might begin to enact their hoping and waiting in a lived-out way, in a revolutionary way, and the status quo might change. 
They said, we need these people to believe that the way things are is the way that they will be, so we're not giving them this text. Now, thank God, the, the full story still found its way among those slaves, and they still fought for their liberation because they knew in their soul that God did not intend this for them, that God intends no one to be enslaved in an unjust system. But it's just so striking to me that people who are invested in the way things are, in the unjust, broken, sinful way that things are, so we can't let them get their hands on the book of Revelation because if they start hoping the way this book is teaching us to hope, if they start waiting in an active, revolutionary way the way this book is teaching us to wait, if they start looking toward the horizon, believing that the light is breaking in, and if they start walking toward that light of a more just world, we will lose the status quo that we are benefiting from. There's the way things are and there's the way things will be. And I think the warning here is if you just surrender to the way things are, you might miss out on the way things will be. But if you let the poetry, the intensity, the imagery, the apocalyptic power of this text wake you up a little bit, you might begin to redefine where you are in the calendar. And when I ask you what time is it, you might say, I think we too are on the eve of our liberation. We too are on the eve of a, of a revolution of God's kingdom that will come. And in fact, it breaks in. There are ways that it's very dramatic and violent and turbulent, but there are also ways that it sneaks in like a thief in the night. It slowly sort of creeps the way a sunrise grows over the land. And in the darkness, and we're not here to pretend it's not dark. We're not here to um, be optimistic or naive. But right here in the midst of the darkness, we are here to hope for the light and believe that it is breaking in. This is one of the reasons Revelation is an Advent text, because it is a text for people who need to know what time it is, that we are at liminal space between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God, and all the goodness and flourishing that it promises to bring. Uh, we wanted to share with one another a practice during the season of Advent. Candles are, um, have really always been sort of a part of the, the practices of Advent for a number of reasons, not just that they're great on Pinterest, uh, but perhaps because there's something really profound about um, what seems to be a frail little flicker that could set the world on fire. Um, something that stands against the darkness and that doesn't wipe it out overnight, but even as you light a candle, you can sense that it is challenging the darkness around it. So some churches will do an advent wreath or a number of candles like we're going to do here today. Families might do it at home. Uh, but the way that we're going to do this as a community is it's, it's, it's meant to sort of set a template for the week for a practice that we could enter into in the next six days. So uh, there are candles at the front of the stage and in a little bit I'll invite you to grab one if you'd like and those are just for you to take home and basically to take this practice that we're about to do together home with you and to return to it a few times in the week ahead. Um, it's, simp it's, it's really simple. It's a couple of questions that would invite a moment or two of prayer and reflection and it's a candle which is meant to be a sign, a symbol, a sacrament, an image, a, an icon of this thing that we are believing and praying for, a little companion for your prayers when you go home and a companion for our prayers as a community here today. So, um, so I'm gonna offer two questions. We'll reflect on each one for a moment. We'll do this first in silence and then uh, out of the silence will grow some music and the candle will be dark at first and out of the darkness will grow some light. And then what we do today with these questions, we would just invite you, if you want, grab a candle in a minute and then take it home and do the same thing a few times during this week. You do it every day. You could do it in the evening or the morning or wherever you have a moment to simply keep your eye on the horizon 
even if things feel very dark, and to know that the way things are is not the way they will always be. So um, let me invite you, if you want, if this is sort of a practice of prayer, so if a posture helps you pray, that's great. If you want to take a deep breath real quick, if you want to just sort of sit upright for a moment and be present here, uh, we'll do that. And then I'll simply um, put this first question on the screen, and we'll meditate on it in silence for a moment. And then after that, we'll kind of move through the next steps of this practice together. But let's begin here. What darkness is there in the way things are? What darkness is there in the way your life is, uh, your home, your family? What darkness is there in the way things are in your office or school, your neighborhood, your city? What darkness is there in the way things are in the headlines? in the politics, in the world at large. Uh, let's simply meditate on that for a moment and in your heart you can name whatever comes to mind. What darkness is there in the way things are? Now as we pray or meditate on this next question, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? In what ways have you seen the light breaking in, even if it's only the faintest glow on the farthest horizon? In what ways have you seen the light breaking in, even if it's only the faintest glow on the farthest horizon? Maybe you realize you're a little stronger today than you were yesterday. That you've grown a little in the season behind you. And you realize that some light has broken in. Maybe you realize that something you had longed for in your family or your home has begun to emerge. Maybe you've realized that in the world around you there are brave, hopeful things happening that as much as it seems like there is one big empire of darkness, you realize there are little pockets of light all around us. Maybe you bring those to mind right now. And maybe you frankly can't think of anything that feels like light in the here and now. To that I would at least suggest, but maybe you have seen something in Jesus that tells you the light is breaking in.
some encounter with who he is or what he has done or how he has taught, some knowledge of the presence of Christ, that even if everything else feels dark, you know that some light is breaking in. So loving God, I pray that this candle would be for us a sign, a symbol, a sacrament, a reminder that the light is breaking in. A reminder that the way things are is not the way they will always be. A reminder of the time, that the time for evil is short, and that the time of your kingdom is coming. We pray this candle would be a sign, a symbol, a sacrament of the light of Christ who comes into our darkness, who invites us to face the east and look for those first faint rays of light and to walk toward it. We pray through Christ. And now we've got one more uh, line of prayer on the screen and we'll put this on our lips together while I light our candle and we'll say, come, Lord Jesus, come. this week. You're welcome to do that now. A light shone down. A light shone down on earth. A star So may you know that the way things are is not the way they will always be. May you keep your eyes to the east where we will see the light breaking in. 
May we walk toward it and hope for it in the here and now. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.